The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. It's election day, but I want to give you something to do other than obsessively hit refresh on your midterm election results browser. I want you to have a listen to James and Deborah Fallows. They traveled more than 100,000 miles across America. And in this time of division and hatred, where it seems like we're coming apart at the seams, they came away with an optimistic vision of America. Don't think that's possible? Hear what they have to say right now. Deborah and James Fallows, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. We are delighted to be here. And me too. So I, I wanted you to to come on the uh, on the podcast. One, you have a, you have a book. You're co-authors of a book. It's entitled "Our Towns: A Hundred Thousand Mile Journey into the Heart of America." And under you know, spoiler alert, it's a positive book. They see positive things. I want to get to that. But on this day, when people are going to the polls and they're voting, and it looks like all hell has broken loose, I would love to get your perspectives on where you see the country right now. Because as the title of your book says, you traveled 100,000 miles all over the United States. Give us some perspective. Help us out here. So the first thing I think all three of us would say to anybody listening who has not yet voted, please, please, please go out and and, and vote. And then once you've done that, so you can come back and then pause the podcast and then uh, <laughs> then and finish up. So the I think we we've traveled a long way all around the country and significantly over a long time. We started this doing doing this five years ago in early mm. 2013 and planned it in 2012. And I think the the main surprise to us, the news I think we ha- we feel we have to give in this book is that every problem that your listeners and all American citizens know about is real. Problems of opioid addiction and economic dislocation and racial injustice and every other problem we know about. And that that is true. But around the country, at the city by city level and sometimes at state level, people feel as if they're coping with these things and that they're moving some ways that, that is forward rather than back. And so you have this split between national level politics, which is about is almost as trying as it's ever been in our national history, almost because there was the Civil War, there was the late 60s, et cetera. But national politics is in really difficult shape. But local level politics at just this stage in American history seems to be in many places renewing itself, having people find reasonable compromises and figuring out solutions to a lot of these problems that people are so aware of. Before before we get to the the solutions and and the way the localities are pushing forward, I do want to focus for a little bit on where we are right now, and the idea that the closing argument for the Republican Party, as delivered by the President of the United States, is fear and anger and loathing and. Um, wagging the finger at the other, think of the rock as a rifle, that sort of language. What does that do, not only to political discourse, but to the fabric of the country? 
it does bad things. And I'll, I'll just uh, uh, jump in here again. So Deb and I are um, more veteran citizens of America than many people listening to this podcast. So we can remember in the 1960s when we were going to college and, and, and growing up. And there have been times sort of like this before when George Wallace certainly was governor of Alabama and resisting segregation or integration and then, then running for president. He was clearly making a, a, a racist um, racist appeal. And Ronald Reagan had had his coded welfare Cadillac, you know, um, mm-hmm. arguments in the 1980s. And Richard Nixon in his law and order speeches. But for most of the past generation, Republicans and Democrats alike felt as if they needed to appeal to America's better vision of itself. George W. Bush, famously as governor of Texas, had had significant significant Latino support because he said there's no reason that Latinos should not want the Republican version of the American dream. And and after the 9-11 attacks, he famously uh, called in uh, Muslim leaders and said this is not a war against Islam. This is, you know, the good forces against the dark forces. And both parties felt as if... Um, they were embarrassed about these sorts of things. The Willie Horton ad by the first George Bush in 1988 against uh, Michael Dukakis was something that Lee Atwater apologized for. You know, this was a, a racist ad against uh, Michael Dukakis. So we've had 20 or 30 years in which leaders of both parties felt as if, given the whole range of human experience, they should appeal to the better side of it. This is the first president in my lifetime who has been unashamed in appealing to the basest in our human potential, and that is bad. And uh, yeah, how, how afraid are you that e- even though the president is appealing to the the basest part of of human nature, that it actually will be successful? That this closing argument could work, and the House doesn't flip in the way that a lot of people hope that it will, or that the Senate, the Republicans actually gain seats as a result of a campaign that is um, run on such a, a, a hateful closing argument. So in, in the household division of labor between Deb and me, I'm more the <laughs> politics guy and Deb will be more the human story uh, person. So just to, to answer mm-hmm. this, this again, as we talk, as the three of us talk, we have we don't know how this election is right. going to, to, to turn out. And it looks as if on the basic math, the Republicans have a good chance of holding on in the Senate and on just because of where the races are. Right. And on the basic math and momentum, the, the Democrats look as if they should be able to make a change in, in, in the House. I think it would be a I I wrote in a piece I wrote two days after the 2016 election in The Atlantic, I said that the elevation of a man like Trump through democratic means was the worst blow the American idea had received in my lifetime. Not the worst thing that had happened in the United States. The Vietnam War was terrible and catastrophic. The assassination of Martin Luther King was a disaster. The 9-11 attacks you know, killed 3,000 people. But the idea that democracy could have this result... I found um, really, really disturbing if the policy and the tone that goes into this election is ratified, especially in the House, that will be disturbing. Deb, I know, I know that the politics part is is not your not your thing. But as someone who has traveled the country, co-author of, uh, of this book, 
I would just love to get your perspective just as, as an observer, as a uh, as an as an American, because really this this election, to my mind, is one where America is going to answer a question that is not just an American question, but the world wants to know, America, what's up with you guys? What seems to me really strange about this particular moment, and by moment I would say the last couple months and and increasing crescendo to the last couple weeks and days, is how much of a distraction and contrary sensibility that what we hear in the, the, quote, national conversation and, and the vocabulary that is coming onto the airwaves and assaulting all of us is so different from what we have seen and heard over the last five years that we've been traveling around the country, where town by town, community by community, the, the vibe has been much more positive, collegial, words like collaborate, cooperate, dominate the local conversations, and that there was an a much greater absence or depression of national issues in favor of local issues as we went from place to place. And it, it feels like these last two weeks are kind of an out-of-body, out-of-mind experience in how the country is talking and and acting. So I, I'm like everybody else today, who knows what is going to happen. I, I think I'm hoping that it it all goes back to a norm that is, is more like what I've just described, where there is some sanity restored and um, we can start moving mm-hmm. in the positive, active fashion that we have seen so much of over the last few years. You know, in in the Atlantic, I think it was in in May, it was sort of like a Cliff's Notes version yes. of right. your of, of your book. And there is one part in there that I'm so glad you're here because I need someone to explain this to me. You had sort of this analogy, you used a specific person, I cannot remember who it was, where on the ground, they're doing all sorts of things, working with immigrants and everything. But when it came to the national election, this particular person you were talking to voted for Trump and that immigration was an issue for this person. And yet, so I'm thinking about this disconnect, as you were just talking about, Deb, this disconnect between the national conversation and what's happening on the ground. How is it that someone can be in favor of what the president is saying on immigration, but then at home in the real life lived experience, you know, they're working with their immigrant friends and and neighbors and doing all sorts of things that on a human level you would want to see happen. Exactly. And this split really became more and more um, prominent the longer we went on and the closer the 2016 election came to, to our travels. And uh, I think we may have mentioned in that article um, our experience in Wyoming, 
we were in Wyoming the day after the 2016 election, and Wyoming was the state with the second largest majority for Trump after West Virginia. And so, you know, people there were happy that Trump had won, but in the next breath said, well, we're really hoping that NAFTA doesn't get upset because that's the basis of our economy. Right. We hope the immigration doesn't get disrupted because that's how our, our state survives and its workforce and all that. And similarly, we we're in western Kansas in Dodge City, which also went uh, strongly for Trump. And their chief financial officer there in town is a man named Ernesto de la Rosa, who's in the U.S. on a DACA waiver. And so everybody loves Ernesto. They think the future of their town is its new multi-ethnic reality. We can talk about their polling place in a minute. Which yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is uh, so, so it is I think something has happened through the media, through Trump, through fear or whatever, that your vote on national politics isn't about anything real in your life. It's about these disconnected, tribal, resentment-driven fears. The people who are afraid of the damn caravan are a million miles from the border. Right. And nobody from the caravan is going to come to wherever they are. And, and it's somehow uh, you can – most places were – they simultaneously were being practical-minded at the local level and had this phantasmagoric – you know, scream painting type view or Fox <laughs> News driven fear of, of out there. And so national level voting is decreasingly about things that are in people's actual lives and more about the other, the fear, the, you know, the nightmare. And, and Dodge City is a really good example. It's a kind of community personified of what's going on besides Ernesto and how people feel about him. It's a, a majority... Anglo voting population, but in the schools it's sixty or sixty or seventy percent Latino, and the voting populace of Dodge City will vote for a school bond levy for a majority minority population to make better schools, better better athletic fields, more activities because they know and want in that town for the residents who live there who are minor, majority Hispanic. To have the opportunity to have good schools, to go to good schools. So they're voting against their own pocketbooks for people who don't look like them. And what's strange is, so they're willing to vote for a levy, for a school, for children who don't look like them, but will vote for a president whose national policies could impact them on the ground in their own communities. This is where the disconnect yes. comes in, and I'm yeah. having yes. a hard time yeah. understanding so, why yeah. they don't see the connection. Because it's a very difficult thing, because nobody nobody can explain it. And what is fascinating about these elections right now today, where all listeners, we hope, will have, have voted, is that this may be sort of a, a point of forced reconciliation because people recognize in voting, especially for their local congressional representative, that they are casting a vote about the national course course of affairs. And I think that that is um, that is, you know, if the math is showing that the Democrats will have some sort of check on Trump, that is people saying, yeah, we we're a little uncomfortable with this with this tone, with the caravan, with just just the kind of naked um, hostility that's coming out. One other thing I think is wor worth mentioning, because Donald Trump is in, off in office and because he has gone all in on the darkest part of his message, especially as we get close to the election, it's easy to forget, number one, 
he lost the popular vote, mm-hmm. which, again, until 2000, no living American had ever experienced that, of somebody becoming president because the previous time was 1888 or, or something. Second, in the 2016 election, in both the House and the Senate, the Democrats gained seats. Uh, so this wasn't sort of Trump sort of going through and everybody bowing down to Trump. There was this anomalous result of Trump ending up in office because of the three states in the upper Midwest. And it was it was not a wave election, except in the fact that Trump won, you know, that, that mm. most incumbents stayed in. Most of the incumbents who lost were Republicans. It was sort of a incremental and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. And so we naturally have to think of it as a Trump wave election because the guy is in office. Right. But all the fundamentals were in this other direction. Oh, that that's interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um I want to come back to Do- to Dodge City, <laughs> yes. um, since um, Deb mentioned it, and that's actually who I was thinking of is was Ernest Ernestor er, er, Ernestor. Ernestor. Right. Um, but again, since it is election day and we're talking about people voting, Dodge City has been in the news because of an action taken to keep people from voting. Yes, and so we were we were shocked when we heard the news about the single polling place being moved to a convention site sort of north of town because this wasn't the Dodge City we had described and heard yeah. about. So I called people in Dodge City and he said, this is not a city decision. This is the Ford County Registrar who is under sort of the sway of Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State, who's running for election to governor and is famous for this sort of thing. And the city officials immediately... The city commission there is five older white people, and all of them immediately announced free door-to-door transportation to the new site for anybody in Dodge City who wanted it. So the city of Dodge huh. City responded in, in that way, and then so Lyft chimed in. Right. So the buses are running round the clock to get people back and forth to the polls. I mean, and this is actually a great segue into the the happy portion of this conversation because we could spend the entire time talking about, you know, what the hell is happening? Where's our country going? Um, And that would be, we would be remiss in not focusing in on the real things. And you broke it down into, especially in the, in that Atlantic Cliffs Notes version into various, various buckets. And I want for the, the, I'm just going to throw out the word, and then you guys have had it. Um, we've been kind of talking about it in terms of Dodge City. But the first one is civic um, civic governance. How? What are the positive things, uh, leave aside Dodge City, that you've seen around the country where civic governance is um, a shining light? We've seen civic engagement, I think I'd call it, mm-hmm. at lots of different levels in lots of different towns that that surprised us. You see... A charter school in Fresno, California, that that is entirely focused for K through six on teaching little kids how to be citizens in their town, and their their classrooms are the neighborhood and the city hall and the urban gardens and participation in the local art hop. Their their curriculum is kind of normal, but it's all around the fabric of how to be a good citizen. In San Bernardino, California, which everyone knows as a very troubled town and probably mostly remembers for one of the shooting episodes mm-hmm. that happened a couple of years ago, there are uh, there is a kind of little wildfire of leadership that broke out among a, gr- a group of millennials who are artists and said, we need to 
take back the city and turn it around. And mainly what we're going to do is get people out to vote. So they've applied their artistic talents into doing a whole bunch of things which culminated in some um, some videos and mini documentaries that they're taking into the high school with the with the idea that these kids will get to vote and they'll get their parents to vote. And it's actually happening. It, it has happened already. And Jim, what other so, things uh, have and we so seen? And so these those engagement things in San Bernardino. It's interesting. It's a San Bernardino is a very heavily majority minority town. It's uh, probably sixty percent Latino, significantly Black and Asian, and they had a really flawed city charter that they were able to mobilize. You know their population to get out and, and vote and overturn on the civic governance front. You know polls reasonably show that most people are sort of having less and less faith in national government to match the great resources the U.S. has to the great problems the U.S. has. But but the same polls show that most people, like 70 or 80 percent, feel as if their own cities are doing the right thing there and being able to match resources to, to challenges and having plans for 20 years from now, we're going to have this transportation system, and they plan for 20 years, and we're going to do this kind of experimentation in schools. Uh, Deb, yes. And another interesting thing, I think, is how cities are figuring out for themselves in the particular place where they're located with their their personalities and their assets and their sensibilities, how to broaden the appeal of local government to their citizenry. And one of the ways this is happening is, believe it or not, it's true, through artists, through local artists. There are a number of towns, St. Paul, Minnesota is one, where there's an artist in residence in the planning department of the city government. Oh, wow. And, and the perspective of that artist is to bring something kind of different to make things more accessible to the local population to participate. So they'll do what may seem like kind of goofy things, you know, uh, festivals in a park, but it's it's around an issue. It's focused on an issue. But the lure is participation for families to bring their kids to make things with popsicle sticks that looks like what the new local downtown building might be. Or if it's in Bend, Oregon, it's about the change in the transportation in the in the transportation grid of how the community works, going from intersections to roundabouts and saying, okay, we've got this roundabout stage in the middle of what happens. Let's bring in local artists to create things to happen there. And people really want roundabouts? It's are actually they, are they coming really in good or pre existing, or they're actually putting in a roundabout? They, are, they have oh, wow. put in dozens of roundabouts, and it's actually environmentally a good thing. No, seriously. <laughs> really? Yep. And people are trainable to you know, behave properly when going through roundabouts. <laughs> that hasn't hit here yet in no. Washington. That is true. Yes. The K Pop Podcast is sponsored by Pharma where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives and perhaps one day yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. So, yes. You know, I, as you're talking about all of these things, I'm wondering if the reason why these things are able to happen and they're successful is because those local leaders are actually held accountable 
to the citizenry and they can't get away from the city. <laughs> they can't, I mean, if you're the mayor of a town or on the city council, when you go out and go grocery shopping or if you go out for a meal with your family, your constituents are all around you and they're going to give you a piece of their mind. So you can't help but listen to them, right? Absolutely. And it, it makes people just behave better. Behave more nicely. You know you're going to run into that person at the Safeway or over the trash cans or Mm -hmm. at the school meeting. So uh, it it kind of puts on this layer of of niceness (laughs) and and reservation. Mm -hmm. um, I happened to be at a conference of mayors the day after. Do you remember during the... um, the Kavanaugh hearings, Jeff Flake was in an elevator and a bunch of young women were, right. were yelling at him or women yelling at him. And the, and he was uh, – th- th- there was a lot of sort of upset about how inappropriate this was to actually, you know, address a legislator. By the, yeah. And, and the mayors were all just laughing and saying, you know, this is daily life. You walk down the street, <laughs> you go – you know, you're having breakfast someplace and people will come up and say, why have you done this? Why have you done that? So I think that there is this – real-world exposure to the consequences of what you do that people at the town level have. And there's another element in there, too, which is is towns are moving, as we all know, toward m- more public spaces. So it means that you don't, you don't just see the people who are in a neighborhood like where you live, people who are like you. If you're out on the, the river walk or riding your bike or you're at the YMCA or at the local public pool or the parks and recreation – you run into all kinds of people who aren't necessarily the people you would spend your social life with in that town. And I think it, it develops a sense of we are all in this together, we are all together, and a sense of empathy for other people's situations besides their own. A huge amount of this happens at the public libraries, which is a critical public institution in the towns. Right, and that's and that's one of the one of the areas that you you pull out or the the on the national level everyone's looking at the demise of bookstores, but at the local level libraries are coming back. One thing that I wanted to um, the next thing I wanted to bring up was talent dispersal. This this to me was was really interesting because we all spend our time focused on people living in Washington and New York and L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago. And that's not where the action's at, really. It, it's not where the action is at only. And only, only, yes, only. And, and so it's, you know, through history, there's always been a pull to big cities, and that will continue. D.C. will be the capital. New York will be the media and financial capital, and people will go there. And that's been a long, you know, American literature from the earliest stages of people leaving the farm to the, the village, et cetera, et cetera. But we were just dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. And I was struck dumb trying to think <laughs> of the word dumbfounded and, and repeat, <laughs> predictably surprised by each place we went, there'd be somebody who had worked at Google, who had worked at the New York Fed, who had worked, had gone to Yale or whatever and thought that I would really like to to have the overall life bargain for me is much better in Des Moines or is much better in Greenville or is much better in Fresno because I may have some personal tie here. My family's here. My spouse is here. The cost of living is so different. You know, to have real estate not being this tumor that's destroying your entire mm-hmm. life is, 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 is a huge liberating effect. Uh, there's a way in which you can be engaged. You feel as if you can make some kind of difference. Uh, there are people who have uh, communications, technologies have made, you know, these thing, things accessible. So we... In almost every city, 
we could find somebody who had lived in the biggest places, who could have lived in the biggest places and thought it is better here. And just my own hometown of Redlands, California, a small town, was transformed by somebody who decided to build his technology company, not in Cambridge, Mass., not in Palo Alto, but back in Redlands, where where he was from and he wanted to change the town. And some of the real faces of this, there's a young woman in Charleston, West Virginia, who makes movies. And she had been in L.A. and was doing that and decided that she wanted to go back to Charleston because any story she wanted to tell, she could probably tell better out of Charleston than L.A. Another young woman I met from in Columbus, Ohio, had had uh, professional design training in Chicago and just got, she, as she described it, kind of worn out of the, of the big city stresses and went back to Columbus, Ohio to do that. Another woman from Erie, Pennsylvania, had a food truck. She was a Korean-American, and, it went, and she was very exploratory and experimental with her food. She said she'd been in San Diego, and the Californians didn't appreciate the kind of food that she was making. <laughs> so she wanted to go back to Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, there are dozens, every place we went, we heard stories like this. There was usually a reason people went back. Family is a huge reason maybe growing up there, but then having gone away and decided to go back, um, and the balance of life. Or, hey, I knew somebody there. I went to visit my friend, and you know what? It looked like a really cool place. What about the idea that um, you've spent your time in in the trenches in the big city, and you're going to go either back home or back to this town where I once visited, and here... I have the, the, the work-life balance, but I, I can also make a real difference. Yes. Yes, yes. And, you know, economic logic doesn't allow for that part of people's motivations or that part of people's souls. That They might find some satisfaction in actually doing and being part of the community and running the school board and, and volunteering in the schools. And so we found people a sort of a two different generational levels, people – our age, mature people, we will say, who thought they wanted to, uh, there was something more they could do, uh, often as volunteers in schools or whatever, and people our children's age, people in their 30s, late 20s or 30s, who thought they wanted to help create some new community. And that was yes. cre- create yes. community yes. is what's driving part of yes. this. And it's, it's interesting that one of the comments we heard in so many of the towns, we, we, we've spent a long time in dozens of towns, towns ranging in size from 1,400 to 10,000, 25, 50,000, and a few big towns like Columbus, there was this universal comment, uh, no matter what the size of the town is, this town is the perfect size. It's a place where I can have impact. It's big enough that there are lots of things going on, but it's small enough that you will know I have been here. I can actually do something here. It was really curious that um, so many people said versions of that same comment in towns that range from 2,000 to 75,000. I guess there's no magic number, but it's different from a town of, of half a million or, or L.A. or mm-hmm. New York. And, and 
just to add one thing there, you know, in national politics, we're sitting here in the offices of the Washington Post in Washington, D.C., and the entirety of our national politics life is essentially about people trying to destroy the other. You know, it's like World War One trench warfare when in the Congress, especially if I can if I can screw you up on this hearing, then I have won. And you end up end up, it's natural to think in national politics that it is entirely a zero sum existence that just anything that hurts you is good for me. And it's amazing to see how many Americans live their lives not purely by that logic thinking, well, maybe I can do something to make this community better. Maybe there's somebody who needs some help who I can help, and I'll feel better because of that. And that impulse in life still ex- still can be found. Mm-hmm. One other thing, so talent dispersal, so people are, are, are going either back home or to places, and that's had an, an impact on downtowns. We've spent so, so much time talking about you know, the demise of the downtown boarded up shops and main streets that are quiet and, and dark. That's changing. That's changing hugely. And, and there seems to be a, a there is a very common main street effect that people people just like their downtowns and they, they want them to look nice. And a lot of them have survived the 70s and still have the good old bones <laughs> uh-huh. of, of previous eras and are and have. In a way, it's easier because you just need a little bit. You need some planning and you need some money. But then you can get to a place where the downtown is is a draw for people, mixed-use planning. So you have people living in lofts upstairs above above a deli or, or a little specialty shop. And the, um, the roads down the main street are small enough that you can have a few cars, but big sidewalks where people can sit in cafes outside. So you you, you see that you see a vibrancy across these communities, um, and we've seen it at at all different levels. Greenville, South Carolina, is probably a great example of a town that has perfected this already. They went from a a, a really sketchy "Don't go there after dark." Main Street to a place that's just flooded with vibrancy and life and music and restaurants and people hanging out and and art sculpture on the sidewalk. So you stop and talk about your town. And then um, ones that are really struggling to be that, but all along the continuum people, but it, it seems like there it's formulaic enough that people in towns know how to do this right something we really do 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 good do well in mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Were you expecting to see what you saw? And by that I mean were you expecting to see this much innovation, this much activity, this much positivity when you decided to pursue this project? No. We we you know we had been living in China for quite a while before this and we just felt as if we wanted to try to apply in the US what we've been doing in China of spending as much time as we could in, in the the hinterland and we just we genuinely didn't know what it was going to be like. We have We've traveled around the country for a long time in a little four-person propeller plane. That can, you fly. Yes, yes, which can, can— Deb, you get in the plane with him? Deb has spent a 1,000 hours in the right seat. <laughs> and here's a secret about this plane. There's a parachute built into the entire fuselage. So if it's oh. really drastic, you can pull that parachute and it comes down like those little balsa wood planes you uh-huh. had when you were a kid. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and it actually works and people have survived 
this we, we have times never over. done this, but people no, have done this. No, it's not something you do cavalierly, but but it it takes away all those worries. Mm-hmm. So, so let, let me let me yes. answer a question you're not exactly asking, but I think is, is in the background, which is, is this a cherry-picked sampling of America? We don't pretend this is any kind of representative scientific sample. We're, we're simply saying we're surprised to, that this exists at all. You know, that, that, that all this sort of local, when we first were traveling in, in South Dakota and Sioux Falls and Rapid City, then in Michigan and Holland, then we were in Allentown, PA or Greenville and, and up in Burlington, Vermont, we just thought, hmm, there's all this stuff that we hadn't expected starting in South Dakota that Sioux Falls was such a happening place and high tech and a downtown and all the rest. And as we went on, we started to say, well, actually, this is is a pattern. And so... The argument we're making is this was new to us. It was a part of the national existence we thought was not captured in the national media, where smaller towns are there usually when there's a disaster or a shooting or a political campaign or something, but not just saying what's happening here. And so to, to we were the news we wanted to convey. What surprised us by showing up was the fact that there was such a wide dispersal or diaspora of people figuring out trial and error things that might make their local circumstances better. And that's that's what we wanted to convey in the book. And, and I think to, to paint that a little more fully, we started out this project thinking we'd just go to a couple towns and see what was going on. We were trying to get a sense of what America was like after we'd been away for four or five years and, and had essentially missed the, the recession around 2008 and 9 and we wanted to see what it was like now. So at at first there was a really strong gee whiz factor like how could we have missed all this stuff? Why why didn't we know about Sioux Falls or Rapid City or Holland, Michigan? And then as Jim said it did become patterns and and a uh, a couple weeks on the road became months on the road became suddenly years on the road and after about or in the air <laughs> and after, after about four years of this, we thought we could, we could go on and do this forever around the country. It was not just an, an anomaly of a bunch of towns we've seen, or we could stop and try to make some sense of it. And that's when, as we had blogged along the way, we thought, okay, let's, let's just try to consolidate this into what became a pretty fat book. Um, <laughs> but, but but not overweight. It's no. you know, it has big bones mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of stories. It's all about we it, we just tried to tell the stories of the people we saw and and what they said through their eyes in all these variety of places from the deep south to the southwest to the northwest to the middle. I'm glad you you said that um, the, the stories that people would tell you. One thing you you mention is. If you want to talk to the to the American people about what's going on, don't talk about you didn't ask them about Trump. You didn't ask them about Hillary Clinton. You didn't ask them about politics at all. So what did what was your your opening gambit? What was your opening question? We there were two things we in, in our first day in a place, you know, as Deb said, we usually be in the places for total of two weeks, usually two one-week immersions per city. And the first day, we'd go to the newspaper editor and the librarian and the mayor and everybody and ask them essentially, what's the story of the town? Now, what, 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 where, how do people think of the town? What are they worried about? What are they proud of? What is the, the dramatic arc? of Fresno right now, the dramatic arc of San Bernardino, which is, you know, right from right right near, of, of uh, 
the Golden Triangle of Mississippi. How what what do people think is happening there, and what what's what are what's the vectors of the good and the bad, and who should we talk to? Who so should was, we meet? Where yeah. should we go? What school is interesting? Can we go into the classrooms? Can we talk to the librarian? Yeah, anybody can talk to the librarian. Just walk in, and they'll tell you what's what are the real issues going on in that town, and you find the wants and needs and the hearts and souls. It also was interesting that as we started, we had a, a few ideas of what might be happening in the town. We didn't just throw a complete a dart into a blank map, so we <laughs> thought there might be stories. And we were usually wrong. After the oh. first day, we usually, and listening to the usual suspects, we found that there were other stories happening. Probably the biggest was in Columbus, Mississippi, um, we had been in Greenville and were writing about a school called, uh, it was a governor's school for arts and humanities, a public boarding school that concentrated, brought kids from, in from all over the state. It was a fantastic place. And we got this letter in, the, uh, in email from a guy in Columbus, Mississippi, who said, you think that school's so great, you got to come to Columbus and take a look at our school. And they did, in fact, have a governor's school for um, math and science in Columbus. But what we found in Columbus was was not just that school, but Jim. A huge industrial <laughs> concentration in a part of Mississippi that 20 years ago, the factories were making toilet seat covers and blue jeans and gravestones for the Pentagon. And those three industries all went down. A lot of the spare gravestones, they now build fences and walls and structures out of in, in the town. But they now make... Uh, Airbus makes its North American helicopters in this part of Mississippi. Um, most of the advanced diesel engines you see in trucks in North America come out of this part of Mississippi. And then the most advanced uh, steel mill in North America is in this part of Mississippi. And so how this happened and how a community college run significantly by a guy from Mumbai whose family ended up in Mississippi and uh, this, this white sheriff's son from Arkansas – who is sort of the industrial um, magic maker there, and his his black female companion from Mississippi, how they brought all this high-tech stuff there, and they're training people who may not have worked for generations, who've been out of prisons, coming home from the Army, to have these jobs where part of the deal of getting the steel mill there is the steel mill had to guarantee that the average wage for workers would be $70,000 in a place where the average household income was 28000 How did... <laughs> How? <laughs> That's Share amazing. Yes. In yes. Mississippi. Yes. Joe yes. Max Higgins. Joe Ma you, and Brenda Latham, yeah. So, you couldn't say no to these people. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a long story, but it's a combination of the state government, the local government, public-private partnerships, power from the TVA facility there, um, working with East Mississippi Community College, with Mississippi State, and Mississippi is not the place, northern Mississippi, not the place you would expect to see this, but by God, it is there. And this gets to another thing that you point out, um, one of the one of the, the spokes, manufacturing. You just talked about how uh, the, the things are being repurposed from from what they were um, before. So in, in you have written, America is becoming more like itself again. Uh, and Americans don't realize how fast the country is moving toward becoming a better version of itself. Very hopeful. Uh, it actually sends chills down my spine. 
but w- what do you say to those folks who hear who hear those words and think, "What are you smoking? Are you not paying attention to what's going <laughs> yes. on?" How how convince the skeptical yes. person that America is becoming more like itself again? So first, let's talk at the local level than nationally. In the local level, every place we went was aware of serious problems, and the longer that we traveled, sort of the lower we went in in the economic success ladder. We ended up spending a lot of time in San Bernardino again, which is a very, very troubled place, and in western Kansas, and in Erie, Pennsylvania, and in Charleston, West Virginia, places where every problem that affects America you can see there, inequalities of every sort, drug problems of every sort, et cetera. And the question was the direction of movement. And, and, and so I think that most places, if you traveled with us, to San Bernardino or to Charleston, where we were recently, or to Erie, and ask them, where are you on the scale? They'd say, well, we're a couple of years into a multi-decade project, but we're going in the right direction. We're going forward rather than back. So I think that what I'd say to people who think we're crazy is try doing what we've done. Go to a couple places that you don't know and ask them not about Trump. You know, do you still love Trump? Do you fear the caravan? But what's happening here? You know, are people moving in? Are they moving out? On the national level, um, I would not say at the national level, America is, is becoming a better version of itself. America is becoming a worse version of itself. It's becoming a nightmare version of itself at the level of national leadership right now. And I think the struggle for the future of the country is precisely be- between the national level paralysis, bitterness, inflammation, and everything else, and the local level renewal reasonableness, inclusiveness, and experimentation, and things that we would like to think the country is capable of. So that is the struggle. I want to close out by asking you each to, to answer this, this question. Um, you know, no matter what happens on election night, um, what would you say to the American people about the future of the country? Because we know at a minimum half the country is going to be very angry about the results on on election night. What would you say to the American people, Deb? I I think I would say go out your front door and talk to your neighbors nicely and try to use good language and have heart that you yourself as an individual can make a difference, whether you think things have gone well or gone badly right now, um, and to feel like you have agency to act with passion at whatever it is that you do and think is important and can have an impact in, on the lives of your family, your friends, your neighbors, your schools, your communities. That's what I'd say. I would agree with that. And I, I, would, I, I would add the – I'll give you the, the boring version <laughs> of that, which, which, is that, which is that America has, has been through a lot. Every single president except George Washington has taken office knowing that at least 40 percent of the people voted against him. You know, that, that, that there's no, even FDR had 40 percent of the people voting against him. So there's always been a disaffected part of, of, of the, the populace. We've had much worse violence than we have now. There's terrible violence now, but there's been even worse. We've had worse divisions. And 
the fact that the U.S. has found ways through the kind of engagement Deb is talking about to surmount this before during Deb's in my lifetime, it doesn't guarantee that we'll surmount this, but it means that 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 despair is not an option. Uh, despair guarantees that the darkest forces will prevail, and engagement doesn't gar- doesn't ensure success and the better side of America, but it is the only way the better side can prevail. So engagement at the local level, voting today, and just thinking that it is an ongoing struggle that depend that involves all of us for the foreseeable future, you know, that that's that's the message. James Fallows, longtime writer for The Atlantic, Deborah Fallows, linguist and author of Dreaming in Chinese, both co-authors of Our Town's A Hundred Thousand Mile Journey into the Heart of America. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart J.